good song. We're looking at a little book called Habakkuk this morning, back in the Minor Twelve Prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and then Nahum and Habakkuk. And we're looking at chapter 3 today. Chapter 3. We'll begin reading when you have the passage. The prayer of Habakkuk. The first two chapters, prophecy. The third chapter is prophetic, but it's a prayer. A prayer. It's written like a poem to be sung, and he wrote it as a song uh, by the inspiration of God, of course. Habakkuk's name means wrestler, and some believe he was wrestling with God as he wrote this book. In uh, chapter 1, he asked two questions, and he asked questions that we're asking. He asked, uh, how can God allow evil to continue in our country, Judah? And we're asking that as well today. Now, we're not the chosen nation, America. Uh, the Jews were the chosen people. We're chosen individually. They were chosen collectively. But he's asking that question, why does evil persist in our country? And we ask that all the time about America. And his second question is, how could God use an evil nation like Babylon to come in and destroy us? Now, it hadn't happened yet, but God told him it was going to happen. He's prophesying, he's writing about between 612 and 606 B.C., where it was 20 years before Israel would be surrounded, but the Assyrians were defeated by the Babylonians in 606. And in 20 years, Judah, Jerusalem will fall. And he knows that, and he's asking God how this could happen. I would say we would ask the same question if China or Russia came in and took over. We'd say, God, why'd you allow it to happen? Well, the answers are obvious. Sin. Sin. And we know later we'll talk about this, but we reap what we sow. Josiah had just died. Remember, Josiah was the reformer. He came in, one of the good kings of, of Judah. Remember, Judah had 20 kings, 12 were evil, 8 were good. Hezekiah and then a bunch of J's. Josiah was one of those J's. And he did a lot of good things, got rid of idols and so forth, tore down false altars, did a lot of good reforms, but now he's gone. Habakkuk and Jeremiah are the prophets of the day. They're living at the same time, and Habakkuk's prophesying and saying what God has given him to say. He's a Levite, meaning he probably had connection to the temple, and of course, as we've already pointed out, he's a prophet. The theme here is justice. And one of the, the key verses of Habakkuk is Habakkuk 2.4, and you find that repeated three times in the New Testament, and that is the verse, the just shall live by faith. And the theme of this whole book is justice. And folks, there will be justice in our world. Not yet, but it's coming. Fret not. How many times does the Bible say, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not? We need to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean on to thine own understanding. In all our ways, we need to acknowledge Him and He'll direct our paths. But we don't need to fear and we don't need to fret. So he asked these two questions. And then he shares in chapter 2, five woes. Five woes. I've heard a lot of preachers preach those five woes. A commentary on this book has been found in the same cave as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Someone wrote about the book of Habakkuk. And, of course, a great book quoted in the New Testament. A.T. Robertson calls Habakkuk a philosopher. Another writer says he's the finest Old Testament writer. His writing is so brilliant. Of course, we know why. He was touched by God to write, inspired. Amos, they call the redneck prophet because 
his grammar is just really, you know, it's like a, a second grade reading level. And then Habakkuk is like a seminary professor or something. He writes completely different Hebrew. But both are great and both are inspired. And God uses these different men in different ways. And so this prayer is written in poetic fashion to be sung. In chapter 1, Habakkuk is, is wondering. He's asking these questions and wondering what's going on. In chapter 2, he's watching. He's watching Israel, and he sees the things going on, and he says, whoa, five times, whoa, what's going on? Here's the problem. And then finally, he's worshiping in chapter 3. As he come to the, comes to the conclusion that all of us should come to, that we don't need to worry. We need to trust in the Lord and quit fretting and worrying about what's going on in our world. We need to pray for souls to be saved. The best way to change our country is from the heart, from within, by being witnesses of the Great Commission. So let's stand and read these three first three verses. We'll look at the entire chapter. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And I'll read one more verse. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And there was hiding the, and there was the hiding of his power. God bless us. We take a look in the book for a walk in the world. That we'll understand the prophecy of Habakkuk and make an application to our lives. And to realize this is the inspired word of God. And Lord, for us to not just be hearers, but doers, to be obedient. As we talk about this theme of justice and about trust and how they go hand in hand. We trust that one day there'll be justice, Lord, because we trust in you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Here we have several things. First of all, the petition of the prophet. The word shiganoth means an emotional, passionate singing. You only find this word twice in the Bible. You find it just prior to Psalm chapter 7. We call that a superscription. You notice in front of some of the Psalms is a little phrase a little line or two about that psalm, and then a subscription is at the end. And just prior to chapter 7, you find that. And it's a passionate, emotional uh, singing. And he says here, uh, verse 2, O Lord, we know who that is, right? All capitals, who is that? Yahweh. Remember, if it's a capital and it's small O-R-D, it's Adonai. Here it's Yahweh. This is the personal name of the covenant God of Israel. And when he was born in Bethlehem, he took on the name Savior. And he became the Savior of our sins and a Savior of the world. And so he says, I have heard thy speech and I was afraid. And he said, I heard that's the word Shema. And you find that, that Hebrew word, I, we know it's on my magazine, I still have some back there. But that Hebrew word means to hear, to listen, and it also means what? To obey. What God says we have to obey. And when your dad, when you were young, he'd say, now listen, son, he'd say something. You knew what that meant, listen. It means obey. And so here, Habakkuk said, Lord, I've heard thy speech. And he says, I was afraid. I was afraid. This is interesting because it's not the word 
the stronger words we find translated fear or afraid in the Bible. This is a different kind of a word. It's a word sort of like a nervousness. Um, it, the word actually means an emotional anticipation of what could go wrong. For you football fans, if your team uh, is receiving the punt and they don't call the fair catch and it rolls out on the half foot line, what do you think? You have an emotional anticipation of something can go wrong. Uh-oh, a safety. We better not fumble or a touchdown for the other team. And in life, we have a lot of those moments where we anticipate, oh, something could go wrong, and you're afraid of that. And that's what it means here. It also uh, means a positive feeling of awe, like, oh, man, and just an anxiety because of the awesomeness of the circumstance or the awesomeness of God. And so he, he heard the word and the speech of God, and he's afraid. And he says, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, he says, make known in wrath. And then he goes and call, call it, in wrath, remember, remember mercy. He says, Lord, I know you're angry, but remember mercy for your people. You know, I like that about quite a few of the people of the Bible. When Moses went to God for the people, he knew the people were terrible, but he still wanted God to, to save the people and to protect them and, and to show mercy. You know, oftentimes we know our spiritual development by how much mercy we want for others. You know, all of us want mercy for ourselves. Oh, God, be merciful. I did the wrong thing today, and I know I just confessed it yesterday. I did it again today. That's what confessing. We put that catheter in, and the junk comes out. We are cleansed when we confess, and you're going to learn and know that by the time I'm dead. You're going to know what that word catheter, that word cleanse. God cleanses us when we confess. But we keep going back and back, and we confess all the time. And, and we know that, that we want mercy. We don't want God to chasten us. But sometimes we, we look at our world and say, oh, God, judge America or judge these people. And that theme's reoccurring through the Old Testament because I've said these things before from other books. And when we're really close to God, we want mercy for others. That's a test of your spiritual level of development. Do you want mercy for the town drunk or do you want God to judge him? It tells us you about your heart. Do we want mercy for the prostitutes or do we want them thrown in jail? Well, we may want them thrown in jail, but we have to have a desire for mercy for other people who are falling short because God's been merciful to me. And I want him to be merciful to other people. And sometimes I want, oh, I wish you'd just judge this stupid government and deal with all these corrupt senators and congressmen. Of course we want that. Justice will come, folks. But right now, we need to plead for mercy for our country. I don't want our country to go down in defeat. We deserve it. And I don't want everybody to just immediately go to hell. You know, the Bible said God takes no pleasure in the death of wicked people. It's a paraphrase. No pleasure in the death of the wicked, it says. So why should we? We want mercy. And so here, he's crying out for the people. And he said, God came from Teman, that really means south of Edom, and then from the mountains of Paran, which means a uh, uh, mountainous area between Sinai and Edom. And so here we have what we call a theopony, an epiphany, and theos, theology, those two words, an appearance of God is what that means. God appears, it says. God appears. And he goes on to say, God came, and it goes on to say, Selah. Now, the word sila 
means a pause in the song for musical accompaniment, and it also means, the, the literal meaning is, so be it. And you'll find the word selah 71 times in the book of Psalms and 74 times in the Bible, the word selah, so be it. It's sort of like our amen, you know, so be it. And you'll find it three times elsewhere in the Bible, all 71 times in Psalm, three other times, and they're right here in this song. Habakkuk's song, this chapter. So he says, so be it, God. Be merciful. So be it, God. I know God has appeared. His glory covers the heavens. His earth, the earth is full of his praise. Here God appears. There's something about the appearing of God that must be just totally awe. Ah, oh, wow. You know, when, when he appeared in the tent of Abraham, and it dawned on Abraham and Sarah, these are special people, and the angel of the Lord was there. And he spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Can you imagine that? He's by a bush, it's on fire, and he hears a voice. And this bush is burning, and he hears a voice. And he's like, is that you in the, who, who is, is this God in here? What an awe, what an awesome thing. And so here God appears. And his brightness, the Bible says, is his light. And horns, these bright bands of light come from his hand. And all this greatness talking about God's, God's omnipotence, all his, his power, he's, he, he's, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. And, and so here we have his presence. We had the petition of the prophet, now we have the presence of the Lord. He says, pestilence follows you. In verse 5, verses 5 to 15, he refers to several things that took place in the Old Testament. He says, believe him, uh, before him went the pestilence, and the burning coals went forth at his feet. The word pestilence is translated in Exodus chapter 9, moraine. Remember the disease that was placed upon the animals during the plagues of Egypt? It's translated plague in Hosea, the same Hebrew word translated several ways. So he's referring to the things that happened in Egypt and things that happened before. He's talking about the pestilence and the plague. He's talking about the greatness of God. He's talking about the nations, and that word nations in, in verse 6 is often translated heathen. You see, the Jews referenced all of the nations as heathen because if you weren't part of the covenant, the nation of Israel, you were considered heathen. And the word Gentiles were all considered heathen. It actually was somewhat of a derogatory term, the word Gentiles, even though it's made more clear in the New Testament that these are people who are non-Jews. And, of course, Gentiles came to be saved by faith, so they're no longer, you know, outside of the kingdom of God. They're grafted into the kingdom of God. And so he's talking about the greatness of God. In verse 7, he mentions the Cushian, that's Ethiopian, the Midianites. And in verse 8, he speaks to God. He says in verse 8, Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? That was a rhetorical question. What is the answer? No. No, he wasn't mad at the sea when it parted and, and, and they walked through and it killed all the Egyptians. He wasn't mad at rivers. He's not mad when there's an earthquake. He's not mad at the, the earth when there's a volcano. He's not mad at the mountain. What's he mad at? Sin. The sin of mankind. Sin angers God. While our God is a loving God, he's also a God that can be angry. 
If you're a good father, your kids see you in two different, from two different perspectives. Sometimes they see you as the loving father because they know if they're struggling, they can talk to you. They know when they come to you, you'll hug them. And other times they see you as the angry one, you know. Ooh, I know I've done the wrong thing and I got to face dad and dad's intimidating, you know. And so we see God that way some, don't we? If we're in sin, we view God as, oh man, is he mad at me? Well, the Bible said, whom he loveth, he... So, yes, he does get angry at sin. And he was angry with his people. How often was God angry with Israel? Over and over and over. Study the period of the judges. I mean, and they were regional, not national. So there are several judges at, in different time, at, at the same time and several judges at different times. But one judge would be battling with the Philistines and the other with the Midianites. And they were sometimes all judging at the same time. There's an overlap with Samuel and the kings and judges and, and all this. And sometimes it can become confusing. But notice the cycle, the vicious cycle. The children of Israel sin. God sends an enemy who defeats them and they become servants of the enemy for 40 years. They repent. God sends a judge in to deliver them. Then what do they do? They go back and do the same thing over again. And we do the same thing. When we just go back and sin, we know what we're doing is wrong, we do it anyway. I pray all the time, God, help me to be submissive to your spirit. Because I know what the old man wants to do. And the new man wants to do the right thing, and the old man doesn't. I have to yield, yield myself. Romans says to yield to righteousness, to yield to the Spirit of God, to yield to the good things. Don't yield to the bad. Boy, the devil can give you the best ideas, can he? <laughs> you remember a young kid and you don't know that you don't know how to distinguish flesh and spirit, and you don't know how to distinguish from what's right and wrong, and you do some really evil things as a kid, and then you realize that wasn't very nice. I remember I, I, I moved in next door to a kid named Alex Cutchins, a kid I really like, and he's now gone. He's, he's not, he's dead now, but yeah, and I was hanging around another kid who was kind of a roughneck, and he said, grab Alex and hold his arms behind his back, and I did, and he went, pow, right in the stomach. Well, I lived right next door to Alex, and he got blasted in the stomach in sixth or seventh grade. Years later, we became friends, and one day he was being candid. He said, you aren't, haven't always been such a nice neighbor. Remember? Oh, I didn't have to have him remind me. I remembered. Because, you know, when you do something like that, right to the guy next door, then you see his dad and mom. Can I hide somewhere? You know, and we do things and we don't think of the consequences. As we mature in God and grow, we realize that we have to be careful. Because what feels good in the flesh for the moment, always comes back to bite you. It haunts you. To this day, I, I hate that I held Alex so Ren could punch him. I hate that. I hate some of the things I did when I was young. You don't get do-overs, but you have two natures. And so we need to hope and pray for mercy. And in this, in this context, he says in verse 8, God, God was displeased. He, he was angry. Then he uses the word wrath here in verse 8. Displeased, anger, wrath. In verse 12, he uses the word indignation. God's not happy. And if God's not happy, we're not going to be happy very long. 
This word wrath is translated rage. Wrath is anger in action. When you see that in the Bible. That's anger one notch up, you know. When you're angry, and sometimes we're angry and it's not always wrong to be angry. Anger can be a good thing. We're angry about sin. We're angry when our children do the wrong thing, but we don't want to elevate that to wrath. So we have to say, God, help me that I don't kill my kid. Help me that I don't kick the dog or spit on the neighbor, you know. We need help because we want to take that anger sometimes and go the wrong direction with it. But righteous indignation is a good thing. God never sins and he's angry. And sometimes we are angry and we have to be careful that we don't sin. Anger is not always sin. But he talks about God's not happy. But think about this. Here God has appeared. And Habakkuk recognizes it's God, and then he brags on him and talks about all these different things. And I want to talk from a, from a, for a moment practically to you about the importance of accountability in your life. We all need accountability. If you refuse accountability, you're no longer under the protection of your husband's leadership. And, and, and men, when you refuse accountability, you're no, no longer connected to your wife like you should be. And when you step outside of the family, the protection of that family umbrella, guess who's going to have to deal with you? We need accountability. You know, when you first get married and you say, I'm going to the store to get a Coke, and you're gone for an hour and you come back, and she says, where you been? We need that. We don't like it, but we need to submit to that. Vice versa. I'm not just picking on men. I'm not just picking on women. But just think if our children didn't have accountability. What would it be like in the home? So accountability is very important, and we need to recognize that. It's needed in our lives. And the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So he sees us, and we're accountable to him. Whether we admit it or recognize it or like it or not, we're accountable to God. And all the nations of the world will be judged, so our country's going to be accountable. Justice will come. I want mercy now, but it's coming. Habakkuk asked those questions about his country. He says, why, why is this going to happen to Judah? And why are you allowing the evil people to punish Judah? Well, Babylon would answer, wouldn't they? The Greeks would defeat them. So God always deals in a fair way. We don't understand it. Our ways aren't his, but it's going to happen. Justice will come. But he asked those questions that are answered in Galatians 6, 9, that everyone will reap what they have sown. Quit worrying about what's going to happen in the world when you see something go wrong. Do you know everyone that's ever committed murder will give an account? Some get away with it. Sixty-some percent of murders, I think, have not been solved. Do you think God's aware who commits murder? Of course he is. Someone may get by with something in this life, but they're not going to get by with it when they stand before God. He'll open the books. So there's going to be justice and accountability. Daniel Webster, who, who wrote Webster's Dictionary, it was a Christian uh, product. If you get the original one, I have one in my office. There's all kinds of scripture through it. But he said this, the greatest thought which occupies a believer's mind is our accountability to God. We do something, we think, mm, God's watching. Boy, I want to do this. Will this make God happy? That's how we're supposed to think. And that's our greatest thought. Another writer by the name of Larson said, behavior that is observed changes. 
And he went on to say, when someone watches us, our behavior improves. Years ago, I was speaking up in uh, Pennsylvania, and one of our directors rode with me up there for the conference, and I thought as he got in the car, well, I can't drive like I normally drive, you know. <laughs> I go, go a little too fast, and sometimes I get, you know how we do that. And we don't, we, we, we want, we think we're the only ones that should be allowed to tailgate. Everyone else is wrong, but we're right. Because we're in a hurry and we're important. And, uh, I remember how cautious I drove all the way there. It took me an hour more than it would have taken me. Got there safe and sound. And I thought later, you know, isn't it interesting how we act so much different when people are around? <laughs> You know, sometimes we let our guard down with our kids, and our kids really know what we're like. But boy, we come to church. You know, we have our best clothes on. We look in the mirror. We put our makeup on. I don't. Harold does, but I don't. But um, we, 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 we look our best, you know. Why? People are watching. People are watching. And when we're at work and people are watching us, we work a little harder, you know. Accountability is vitally important. And if you don't have accountability, you need to get some. I, I think the best new, not, it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. But one of the new teachings that came out years ago, back in the 90s, I was asked to speak at an Iron Man's conference. I said, what's an Iron Man's conference? I was asked to speak, and they used the verse, iron sharpeneth iron. And I did remember that. And, and over the years, that's become a big thing. Some of us gone in different directions, but my point is this. They stress the importance of having someone you're accountable to. And it's good for men to have an accountability partner. Confess your faults one another. Not your sins, but your faults. Do you know it's okay to get together with another guy and say, hey man, I'm really lusting. Pray for me, I'm struggling with lust. And then we say to one another, well, be careful now. You can ruin your life. You can ruin your Accountability is good. Accountability is good. Confess your faults, and we all have them. If you don't have faults, just raise your hand. We'll recognize you this morning. <laughs> we need others. We need that wife to say, hey. We need that husband to say, hey. And if we don't submit to that, we're sinning against God. Submit to the accountability God's placed in your life. A good boss. Sometimes you say, my boss is an idiot. I wish I had a different boss. Then you get another one. He's worse. So be accountable. Be accountable. All of us have worked for people who weren't great leaders, right? I've played for coaches that didn't know which, which, which basketball goal to shoot on. In fact, one time I made a basket on the wrong side. That's the coach's fault. Seriously, all of us have had poor leadership. We need accountability. Be accountable to someone. Have a friend your spouse, and, and have someone who will say to you, this is when you grow and mature, someone who will say to you, Dan Mao, you're wrong. You're doing the wrong thing. You're handling that wrong. You know? It's hard to be accountable, but we need it. We need it. And when we are observed, we live differently. Well, back to our text in verse 13. We, we find God's angry. We, God points all that. Then he says, Thou went forth for sal the salvation of thy people. 
The word salvation, the Hebrew word, like the Greek word, Frank pointed out in science school, the Greek word has many meanings. It can mean deliver. And salvation doesn't mean spiritually all the time. We see the word salvation, we think of our new birth experience. It doesn't always mean that. In this case, God delivered Israel so many times. Do you know what? One day God will save Israel spiritually. In the tribulation period, they're going to get saved. 144,000. We have several missionaries with our board that reach out to Jews, and I've witnessed to Jews, and they just are cold about the Messiah thing. They don't believe Jesus is a Messiah. But here's this word here. Look, for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed one. With thine anointed. This is the word Mashiach, and it's our word Messiah. In the New Testament, how is it translated? Christ. Christ is not a name. Did you know that? It's a title. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. It's not God's last name. Messiah is a title. And when you see Jesus Christ in the Bible, it's emphasizing his humanity. When you see Christ Jesus, it's emphasizing his deity. And those are important words, but Christ is not a name. It's a title. He is the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah that fulfilled all the Old Testament promises, including this one about the Messiah. The one we talked about was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem 700 years before he's born. And he's the one. He's the one. And so he talks about the Messiah here, the Christ, the Christ. And he's the one who would bring deliverance, the anointed one. And so here, we find the petition of Habakkuk in the presence of the Lord, and then we find the proper attitude. I love verses 16 to 19. As we conclude today, we have to point out what he says in these verses. In verse 16, when I heard my belly trembled and my lips quivered at the voice, God had appeared, remember. When God began to speak, he's nervous. Not, it's not a phobia-type nervousness. In fact, normally that word is used when it's a sinful fear. When we're not right with God, we have phobia of God, you know? You know why people don't want to go to church who are not right with God? Because of phobia. They fear God. Oh, I'm going to go to church, and that preacher's going to preach right at me. He is, but he doesn't know he's preaching at you. The Holy Spirit's telling you he's preaching at you. We had all the backsliders in church today. Church would be full, wouldn't it? But people are afraid to hear the truth. I don't want to go to church because then I'll be accountable to that sermon. Let me tell you something. You're still accountable to the Word of God whether you listen to it or not. Did you know every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? Doesn't matter whether they want to or believe it. Well, I don't believe in God. One day they will. The Bible says the devil believes and trembles. He knows God's real. Got all these educated idiots out there that don't believe in God. One day they will. Every knee will bow. And so here he begins to talk about, you know, how afraid he was. And he, he just, he's saying here, we need to trust in God's justice. The just shall live by faith. Do you believe God's going to be just? Do you believe God's going to deal with sin? Do you, do you believe God's going to deal with all the world's problems and all the world's nations? Absolutely we believe that. We still want mercy right now, but we know God's in control. Do you believe he's in control of your boss, who sometimes can be a jerk? Your coworker who's unfair and dishonest? Vengeance is mine. I will 
He'll repay. He'll deal with that. Don't you worry about it. He will. He will because he's God and he's just. And we have to trust in his justice. They didn't have any food and, and Israel was struggling. They were, they're, they're fearful. They, they're, they're hungry in verse 17. And I love verse 18 because it starts out with a little transitional word. Look at verse 18, 318, as we wrap this up. What does he say? Yet. In spite of all that's going on in America and all the mistreatment of Jews, in spite of what's going on with your neighbors, and you know your, your neighbor is sleeping with someone down the street, in spite of all that injustice. Years ago, I was in the park. I guess I can't tell that story. I caught a man in the park doing something that I probably shouldn't share. And I thought he got in his truck and drove away, and I thought, Ugh. He's out in the middle of the road. I don't know who he's trying to impress, but it wasn't impressive to me. And I was up in the hill, and I came down with my 10, 15 speed or 10 speed, and I said, you really got a problem, mister. He got in his truck and drove off. You know, we really, we really get so worried and concerned and upset about events in our little world, and we forget who's sovereign. Yeah, I know it's a reoccurring theme. It's always going to be a reoccurring theme because we need to remind ourselves all the time that God's in control. You're not in control. You ever meet a control freak? Wants to be in control of everything. And all of a sudden they're dethroned and they realize, wow, I really wasn't in control. Yeah, that's right. Nebuchadnezzar really wasn't in control. God was. Nebuchadnezzar was just God's puppet. Yet, he says, mark that, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy the God of my salvation. There's so much to thank God for. I pray regularly and just thank God for my heritage. What a heritage, my parents and grandparents. And I remember going to my grandfather's house and he would pray that long, eloquent prayer before we eat. He was a believing man. And my dad was a believing man, and I'm a believing man, and my children are believers. And that's, I just thank God every day because the little bit of problems that I go through, the, the little things I ha have go wrong in my life, and the little hassles I have aren't anything to compare to the glory and the praise that I want, I'm going to receive and be part of one day when Jesus comes. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Yet I will rejoice. I love reading Ruth. He says to Ruth, in, in, in Ruth 3.18, just lay down at Boaz's feet. Now, Boaz was a mighty man. We know that. A wealthy man. He was a man in the, in the leadership of the city. He would be seen at the gate. Just trust me, Ruth. Just lay down at his feet. So when he wakes up, he sees you there. Just, 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 just do it, Ruth. Just sit still. At the feet of Boaz. Trust me. I love what he says to the psalmist. Be still and know I'm God. Ruth, sit still. Everything's going to be okay. He says to the psalmist, the sons of Korah, be still and know that I'm God. And he says to Moses, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. We want to fix everything. I'm a fixer. And sometimes I can't fix things. There's things in my life, there's one big thing in my life I can't fix right now. You really want to fix it, but I can't. I have to just sit still. 
I don't like sitting still. I want to take a hold of the situation. You know, all we can do is pray. Lord, Lord. And in my life, I may not see that prayer answered. In your life, you may not see it answered. But you trust God as the God of eternity. He's not just God of this week. And his ultimate plan will all come together even though we don't know how and why. Yet I will rejoice. Can you say praise the Lord today? And the one Hebrew word all of you know, hallelujah. You know what you just said? You said praise the Lord. That's the Hebrew word for hallelujah. Trust in him. We have a new year and resolutions will come and go, but he'll remain the same. You'll fall short. Things will go bad. Things may get worse. But God never changes. He's a God of love. He's in control. He has our back because he loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for your word. And God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you in a personal way, I pray they come and trust Jesus today as their Savior. And our altars are open for anything, Lord. People can come and pray, and you know that. We're always willing to pray with others. But God, only you know the hearts today. I don't know the hearts. And when I get frustrated, as I often do, I have to learn, oh, God, you're in control. I have to rejoice in the Lord, even when things don't go right. Lord, forgive me as I pray every day for not trusting like I should. Help us, Lord, to look to you in everything as we approach a new year. That will keep you first. Seek first your kingdom. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.